Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 350th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, as we know them to be. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. <laughs> Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and happy Hanukkah, everyone. Very good. Our lead story this morning is about the need for hospitals to redouble their education of new coders, This, especially in the light of the OIG's plans to conduct ERG validation audits. And healthcare consultant Carrie Greenwood will report on the compliance challenges facing today's new coders. Indeed. And speaking of the OIG's plans to conduct those DRG validation audits, Glenn Krause reports on the crucial role of CDI in preventing upcoding or miscoding to receive increased reimbursement. Also on today's broadcast, we'll hear about the latest regulations from Washington. That's when Stanley Nockhamson joins us with his RegWatch report. Looking forward to hearing that, of course. And joining us this morning is Dr. Ron LaHurst. Dr. Hurst will provide a perspective on the National Action Plan for Adverse Drug Event Prevention. And, of course, you have a talkback segment on this uh, very subject this morning. Could there be a possible dismissal of the $188 million lawsuit filed against Providence St. Joseph Hospital for alleged upcoding? With that report is Mary Inman at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on how to conduct ERG validation audits. It features Dr. Timothy Brundage, and it's tomorrow, December 5th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Mary Inman. Thanks, Jack. In August of this year, a whistleblower-initiated False Claims Act case against Providence Health and Services and its consultant, J.A. Thomas & Associates, was unsealed and made public when the government declined to join the case. The case is notable as it is part of a new breed of whistleblower cases in which the whistleblower, instead of being an insider employed at Providence or J.A. Thomas, was an outsider, a data analytics company called Integra Med Analytics, who looked at publicly available claims data to uncover what it alleged was a statistically significant pattern with the hallmarks of upcoding fraud. Specifically, according to Integra's complaint, Providence hospitals that use J.A. Thomas & Associates as a consultant were significantly more likely than other hospitals to bill Medicare for three secondary diagnoses, encephalopathy, respiratory failure, and malnutrition. Those diagnoses can increase a hospital's Medicare payments by $1,000 to $25,000 per claim. In a new development in this matter, defendants Providence and J.A. Thomas have now moved to dismiss the case, arguing that the whistleblower has not brought the government any information that it did not already have, since Integra just used publicly available CMS data for its allegations and thereby has not satisfied the False Claims Act's requirements that cases must be based on non-public information unless the whistleblower is the original source of the information. The court is scheduled to hear defendant's motion to dismiss on January 12th. 
Although the whistleblower has not yet replied to defendant's motion to dismiss, it is likely that whistleblower Integra will respond by, the, the, by noting that it does not rely exclusively on its statistical analyses of public data to allege fraud against Providence and Thomas, and instead supplemented its analysis of CMS claims data with more traditional, classic inside information to confirm its findings. According to its complaint, Integra, Integra conducted what it describes as an exhaustive, multifaceted investigation whereby Integra interviewed former employees of Providence and J.A. Thomas and reviewed their marketing materials to show Providence's alleged false claims were not only intentional, but part of a systemic effort to boost Medicare revenue. Integra's complaint references internal documents, presumably provided by the former employee insiders that Integra interviewed, allegedly containing examples of J.A. Thomas coaching and steering Providence doctors to upcode for CCs and MCCs. Historically, data cases filed by whistleblower outsiders such as this have not had a lot of success due to many of the problems defendants are now raising. However, we'll need to wait for whistleblower Integra's reply and ultimately the court's hearing of this matter before we know if Integra has provided enough non-public information to allow its complaint to survive and for the case to proceed. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner at Constantine Cannon's London Law Office, and Mary was calling in from London. It's Tuesday, it's December the 4th, 2018, and you're listening to the 350th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Are you looking for reliable answers to your toughest coding questions? You need a HEMIS code check service. Unlike any other service, a HEMIS code check is unique. It combines ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, and HICS-PIX classification systems into a single solution, providing expert coding support with one business day turnaround. With the new online portal, you can control access for staff members, build a library of answers, share answers, upload supporting documentation, gain insight into knowledge gaps, and more. Learn how AHIMA's code check can benefit your organization at ahima.org slash codecheck. Here now with the latest regulatory news coming out of Washington is healthcare IT expert Stanley Knoxon with the Talk to Tuesday Reg Watch. Good morning, Stanley. Morning, Chuck, and good morning to our panelists and listeners. Well, since the onslaught of payment regs that we've got over the last couple of months, uh, CMS has turned its attention to uh, another topic. On November 28th, uh, CMS and the Office of the National Coordinator jointly released their draft strategy on reducing regulatory and administrative burden relating to the use of health IT and electronic health records. This is done for public comment, and it's an effort that was required by Congress in the 21st Century Cures Act to work with the public on reducing the time that providers spend on EHRs and documentation improve usability, and increase provider satisfaction with the use of electronic health records. Now, since uh, EHRs were introduced and then required by the federal government, providers have been expressing their dissatisfaction with their use, both in the complexity of the EHRs and their interference with patient care. This is an attempt by the federal government to help correct identified problems. 
Now, the draft strategy has three overarching goals. First, reduce the effort and the time required to record health information in electronic health records for clinicians. Secondly, reduce the effort and time required to meet regulatory reporting requirements for clinicians, hospitals, and healthcare organizations. And three, improve the functionality and the ease of use of electronic health records. It's important to recognize that these agencies consider usability of electronic health records an equal goal to interoperability of the HRs in moving the industry forward in the use of health IT. The government's already established four work groups to develop those draft recommendations. They concentrate on four areas, clinical documentation, health IT usability and the user experience, EHR reporting, and public health reporting. And the strategies and recommendations from these work groups are included in the draft report. Now that now CMS and the Office of the National Coordinator are reaching out to the public to get comments and suggestions on these recommendations. This is just another opportunity for our listeners and the public in general to influence the direction of HIT progress in the United States. The public comment period ends on Monday, January 28th at midnight. I certainly urge folks to read the document. It's available uh, at the website, and there's a, a link on the uh, article that was written today, and provide your input to ONC and CMS so you can have some influence on the way that EHRs will be structured in the future. Now, here's a interesting uh, proposed rule that will be published shortly, something that we usually don't see, a relaxation and a removal of a requirement. Uh, in the original HIPAA legislation, uh, one of the identifiers that was required was the health plan identifier, a single identifier for each health plan in the country. This will no longer be required. A uh, little history on this, on September, 20, uh, September 2012, the Department of Health and Human Services published a final rule adopting the unique identifier called the HPID for health plans. There was a lot of industry concern, confusion, um, and questions about these requirements. Based on all of that, on October 1st, 2014, CMS announced a delay in enforcing the rules for obtaining and using these HPIDs. In May of 2015, HHS released a request for information to solicit feedback from the healthcare community about the use of that identifier. After reviewing those comments, as well as recommendations from the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics, CMS has now issued a rule rescinding the requirements for obtaining and using a health plan identifier. The HPID can still be used on a voluntary basis for those entities that already acquired it, but we expect to see limited use in electronic transactions. The industry had told CMS that the initial purposes of the health plan identifier, as noted in the HIPAA legislation, have already been accomplished, so no new identifiers have been needed. If this will be part of the directive from the uh, Trump administration to eliminate unnecessary regulatory burden. Erica, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much. And thank you, Stanley, for an excellent report. You can read his report this morning in the ICD-10 Monitoring News. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is Glenn Krauss. Good morning, Glenn. Uh, good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Tuesday. 
that was a great uh, uh, piece initially about the uh, Providence Plan. We have, we have, we've all heard about the OIG's recent addition to its work plan last month titled Assessing Inpatient Hospital Billing for Medicare Beneficiaries, in which the OIG reiterated their concern along with CMS for provider potential upcoding, the practice of mis, mis or overcoding to increase payment. The OIG plans is to conduct a two-part study to validate their suspicion of upcoding through conducting of data analytics and data mining to determine how coding patterns have changed over time globally. Then they will do a next phase of the project consisting of a targeting hospitals and our certain diagnosis codes for medical review to further validate upcoding and miscoding. And we all heard about the primate, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the lawsuit, uh, with Providence just a little bit ago. So the announcement of this Providence lawsuit and OIG's work plan, this should be a wake-up call and motivator for hospital facilities to take a real hard look at current CDI processes, taking steps to enhance the integrity of their programs. And when I say uh, integrity, I'm not referring only to ensuring compliant queries and adhering to the AHEMA Active Practice Brief on compliant queries or looking at the program's data results such as CCMCC capture rate, query rate, agreement rate, top 10 DRGs, PEPA data, clinical validation, DRG reconciliation, and so forth. These actions are key, are key elements to remain. They're integral to any CDI program. Instead, I'm referring to CDI embracing and operationalizing the concept of achieving true documentation integrity through development and rollout of an effective documentation program. And what I mean about it is really working with physicians to educate and share knowledge with uh, physicians uh, about what is what is a good note, what is the standards of documentation, or what is a good H&P. Uh, and we really need to go beyond the query process. Integrity of the record equates to the medical record speaking for itself, telling and retelling the patient's story with clear evidence of the patient within the story. And as a practicing coder, I think there's a big concern, obviously, with uh, signing the correct DRG, is that's what the OIG is concerned about. Uh, as a practicing code, I find it awful hard sometimes to be sure that I'm, I'm most positive that this is a compliant uh, DRG, but we have to go with based on what we have in the chart. We can query all we want. We still have to have a record that speaks for itself. So the story spans from the entire, from the time of ED presentation or direct med through the physician decision to omit progression of the patient culminating the discharge summary. So how does one begin this journey of transforming the program to actually enhancing the integrity of the entire record? So in uh, today's uh, uh, ICD-10 Mono, I have a great article that I've outlined where I'm working with a client to develop a CDI program from scratch. And what I learned is that if you work with physicians to understand and appreciate the challenges they face in documentation, uh, a program cannot be off the shelf, here it is, and become familiar with and knowledgeable ourselves with the best practice standards and principles of documentation from an H&P progress no discharge summary standpoint. We develop our knowledge and uh, skill sets. We share our training and with training sessions for physicians that incorporates both documentation and, and also the documentation to support the diagnosis, uh, that's really a more proje uh, holistic approach to uh, CDI. 
and a more realistic approach to CDI will drive integrity of documentation that best supports the integrity and accuracy of coding. This, is, to me, is a more sensible approach to CDI. So I'd like everyone to really take a moment to read my article in today's ICD-10 monitor that outlines a specific approach that I find is very beneficial. Physicians are buying in. And I think the most important thing is to say is that if we're going to really affect positive change in documentation for communication of patient care, we really need to think of ourselves as facilitators in communication, and that means working in hand-in-hand and synergistically with our case management and UR, who happen to be part of the training process at this hospital. So in closing, integrity of, uh, integrity of documentation requires a much more holistic approach, as I outlined, uh, and that will, by definition, really reduce our exposure for DRG validation. With no further ado, back over to Erica. Thanks, Glenn. That was nationally recognized CDI expert Glenn Krauss. Glenn is the CEO and founder of Core CDI. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thank you, Glenn, very much. Coming up in about 18 minutes after the hour, we're going to have a doctor's perspective on adverse drug prevention. Stand by. Your career means a lot to you. It means a lot to AHIMA, too. AHIMA encourages health information professionals to never stop learning but keep expanding their skills. Whether you're just starting the journey or well on your way to a successful career in health information, an AHIMA credential is your guide to career enhancement, increased salary, and greater success in your chosen profession. When a person becomes AHIMA certified, it reflects a deep personal commitment and sense of accountability, inspiring credibility and confidence in an individual's professional knowledge. Find out where an AHIMA credential can take you at ahima.org slash certification. For perspective on the National Action Plan for Adverse Drug Event Prevention is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, Dr. Hirsch. Well, good morning, Chuck. Happy Hanukkah to everyone. It's been 18 years since the Institute of Medicine released their infamous report to Air as Human, which claimed that between 44 and 98,000 patients die in hospitals every year from adverse events. This led to the patient safety movement. Now, because CMS didn't trust hospitals to improve patient safety on their own, they introduced the HACC program and the dreaded present on admission designation. The OIG, never wanting to be left out, decided in 2010 to take a look at adverse events in hospitals. I'm looking at data in 2008. They determined that 13.5% of Medicare patients experienced an adverse event during hospital stays, and the most common cause was medication errors, which accounted for 31% of those errors. The OIG estimated that in 2009, over $4 billion was spent on care related to adverse events. But Congress decided that action was needed, so in 2011, they tasked HHS to develop a national action plan. And three years later, the plan was introduced to look at three classes of drugs where they felt many adverse events were potentially avoidable, anticoagulants, diabetes agents, and opioids. Now, since they started their plan, several new anticoagulants have come into broad use, all with fixed dosing. So the use of warfarin, the cause of most adverse bleeding events, has declined. The two medications that cause most hypoglycemia are insulin and sulfonylureas. And in the past few years, at least eight new medications have been released that are more efficacious and do not cause hypoglycemia. 
And after CMS contributed to the opioid epidemic with their push for patient satisfaction, we now see a drastic increase in the use of non-opioid pain medications and methods and a decline in the use of opioids. At some point, they're going to have to realize that the problem with all of those three medication classes has fixed itself. Now, since HHS's efforts will fall short, that leaves it to all of us to make sure that we are properly rec recognizing and reporting adverse drug events. And ICD-10 coding has made it easier for epidemiologists and researchers to find those adverse events, look for patterns, and reduce them. But it needs to be rational. And Dr. Reamer will provide some guidance in a few minutes on how to make it rational. Think about this. If every drug effect, side effect in every drug study was reported to the FDA, they would probably be obligated to ban the use of placebo. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Ron. That was my friend, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services. Chuck. Thanks, Erica. And Dr. Hirsch, thank you very much. Our lead story this morning is about the need for hospitals to redouble their education of new coders, especially in the light of the OIG's plans to conduct DRG validation audits. Here now is healthcare consultant Carrie Greenwood with a report on the compliance challenges facing today's coders. Good morning, Carrie. Welcome to Talk in Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. Um, today's topic is the new coder quandary, which is compliance risk in relation to new coders. Coders and auditors are taught to be diligent when working with high-frequency, high-cost, and problem-prone cases, as these topics are often the focus of third-party reviews. But what does that mean for the new coder? The new coder may not be aware of which cases fall into these categories. So outcomes really depend on the training and preparation that new coders are provided. Also, what is the definition of new? Is it inexperienced coders, coders new to the facility, or both? The answer is, it's up to you but your training should reflect your definition. You may ask, why should we care so much about new coders? Well, new coders can represent a compliance risk if they're not made aware of the facility's guidelines and data needs. An example is an experienced coder who is new to the organization but is not aware of which devices are utilized by the facility or where to find that information in the electronic health record. In this situation, a new technology device may go uncoded and the facility could lose substantial reimbursement. Another example is an inexperienced coder who codes only from the provider's statement that a spinal fusion was performed when the procedure was really an insertion of internal fixation device. This error results in assignment of an inappropriately higher-weighted MSDRG, which is a compliance concern. The best case scenario is when new coders are provided with formal training which covers the facility's specific coding guidelines, the state data commission needs, if applicable, introduction to other parts of the revenue cycle, and most importantly, opportunities to code a variety of sample cases, including those high dollar cases, with guidance and feedback provided. In other words, new coders need the opportunity to become familiar with the facility's approach to coding. Newly graduated coders will need additional training in coding using real documentation to ensure that their skills are adequate. The benefit of feedback is invaluable for these coders. An investment in training new coders is economical compared to refunding reimbursement or fines with penalty and interest paid to a regulatory agency over a compliance issue. Of additional benefit is the give and take between coders. This is some of the best education that any coder can receive, as we can all learn from our peers. Some things to consider in relation to coder orientation to your facility might include the following. Facility-specific coding guidelines, 
review of clinical documentation in the electronic health record, discussing the data needs for the facility, payers, and or state regulatory agencies, demonstration of other software tools available to the coder, career ladders, job descriptions and expectations, introduction to contacts within the revenue cycle, project productivity requirements by chart type, accuracy requirements, opportunities to code sample charts with feedback, and review of correct query writing if needed. There are many activities a coder must deal with. The best approach to preparing them to be effective is to provide a detailed orientation and a safe space to allow the coder to practice and become proficient before a compliance risk is created. Back to you, Erica. Great tips. Thanks, Carrie. That was Carrie Greenwood. Carrie is a revenue cycle product specialist with CareerStep. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, uh, Carrie, for being on our program this morning. Now is the time for a very popular segment here on Talk to Enthusiasm called Talk Back. It features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind this morning? Sharon Savinsky brought up an interesting topic last week, which I didn't have time to respond to. She was tasked with sorting out adverse drug effects for her institution and was wondering if it should be approached like post-procedural complications. Let's consider the latter first. If a surgeon is having more than his share of post-op incision infections and dehiscence, we don't want to do contortions to get him to represent a complication as an inherent consequence such that we can't detect his falling out of quality metrics. We want him to wash his hands better. If a drug is causing a specific problem and we don't capture it by coding an adverse effect, then we may not be able to epidemiologically pick up on that consequence of the medication. Maybe it should come off the market. The question you often hear is, what if that side effect is expected with that drug? Let's go over some definitions and concepts. Side effects are signs or symptoms that occur routinely and not unexpectedly when a drug is administered in the therapeutic range, like dry mouth from an anticholinergic. They don't even have to be adverse. So a malnourished patient who must take steroids and has their appetite stimulated experiences a side effect that is welcomed. Adverse effects of a drug refers to unwanted, uncomfortable, and even possibly dangerous effects that a drug may have. In developing medications, you weigh the risks against the benefits and decide if the side effects are worth the desired effect. We shouldn't conflate adverse effects with adverse drug events, or ADEs. The government, as Ron was talking about, defines ADEs as injuries resulting from a drug, and they can be as a result of medication error, overdose, allergic reactions, or adverse drug reactions. Adverse drug reactions, ADRs, are considered a subset of ADEs, the harms directly caused by drugs administered at a normal dose. This is synonymous with adverse effects of drugs. So ADRs and adverse drug effects are the same. I think the crux of the matter is the word harm. Just like you have criteria for considering a condition a valid secondary diagnosis, there are criteria which constitute a reaction sufficiently noxious to conclude adverse effect of a drug. If the reaction necessitates discontinuation, substantial dose modification, or admission to the hospital, if the length of stay is prolonged, or treatment is complicated, if there is temporary or permanent harm, disability, or death. The government, as Ron mentioned, selected three high-priority drug classes for monitoring of ADEs 
due to the morbidity and mortality associated with the harms and their amenability for prevention, anticoagulants, diabetes agents, and opioids. These are the classes included in that ADE action plan. For instance, the diabetes agents that were being surveilled are specified as being associated with severe hypoglycemia, defined as requiring third-party assistance or resulting in a blood glucose lower than 40 milligrams per deciliter. Needing a sip of orange juice does not qualify. This exemplifies the approach to Sharon's hospital's dilemma. The question to ponder is, is this sign or symptom typical and relatively innocuous, or is it unusual, alarming, and potentially dangerous? Former, side effect. Latter, adverse drug effect, and use that T code. Adverse drug effect of significant magnitude involving anticoagulants, hypoglycemic agents, or opioids is the ADR and that falls into the adverse drug event in the government's view. If it's not in a drug that is administered properly, then it still falls into adverse drug event, but it's not considered an adverse drug effect or ADR. I hope that clears things up, not confuses you more. But if it does, read my article for more details. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Erica. That's going to be a wrap for our 350th edition of Talked In Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Carrie Greenwood, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, who was calling in live from London, Glenn Krauss, and Stanley Knoxon. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talked In Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And I hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Talked In Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck. Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk to Tuesday. Thank you so very much for sharing your time with us today. Talk to Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.